Chapter 15, Part 3 Of 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water by Ethel Gwendolyn Vincent The Metropolis of India and its Himalayan Sanatorium Part 3 Tuesday, January 13th Everybody comes up to Darjeeling with hearts full of bright promise of seeing the most glorious snowy range that exists in the world. Very few but go down sadder and wiser. The view, as seen from Mount Central, of the range is described as almost unparalleled. A panorama of pure white peaks as far as the eye can reach. And then, rising from among the sea of snow and ice, is seen the highest mountain in the world, Mount Everest, 29,000 feet, lying in Nepal, about 80 miles away as the crow flies. The small peak takes the appearance of a soldier's helmet without the spike. It is a lottery, whether travelers going for a few days up to Darjeeling will ever have the chance of seeing the snowy range. Very fortunate are those few who do. Thus, on this morning, we talked of getting up early and trying the expedition to Mount Central. Of course, it is a question of riding, for at these hill stations there are no carriages, and you must ride, be carried in a dandy or in a palky, or perhaps be drawn in a gin rickshaw. There was, however, a thick fog at Darjeeling, and the hope was at best so forlorn of a glimpse that we gave up the idea. C went up to the cantonment to breakfast with an old brother officer of the 23rd, and when he came back, we decided that it was more prudent on my account, for I was feeling very unwell to descend to more comfortable quarters in lower altitudes. The train was full, but the station master offered to take us down to Kersiong on a trolley. The trolley was attached to the train, and we were dragged the four miles uphill to Goom. Then, after shunting and getting in front of the train, we were let loose down the hill. Oh, the awful sensation of that first rush downhill. We lost our breath. We were blind. We were cutting the air in twain. So sharp was our concussion against the element. We clung on for our lives. We swung round the corners, raising a cloud of dust to mark our fleeting course. After the first alarm, it was delightful. Wrapped up to the nose in Ara's eyes, the exhilaration and excitement were entrancing. We scudded down the hill, increasing the speed from 15 to 20 miles an hour. The brake put on just before a curve steadied the trolley round it and then removed. With fresh impetus, we dashed along the level incline. We scattered all before us. Affrighted children hid their faces. Cocks and hens flew at our approach, and dogs slunk away. The entire population of the bazaars rushed out to gape open-mouthed at us. Ponies and horses shied and plunged violently, being far more frightened by our little flying Dutchman than by any train. Whiz and whirr 
and they were all left far behind. The air was bitterly cold, and C's mustache was freezing hard, but we thought not of this, but of keeping our breath in our seats. Now we were wrapped in a cloud, unable to see more than a few yards before us, the next instant under the influence of a gleam of sunshine. We drew up at a signal box at Toon. The descent to earth was too cruelly sudden, and all that remained to us of our glorious ride on a trolley were the tingling sensations in every limb, the quickened flow of blood in our veins. The sudden check came in the form of an announcement from the signalman that a luggage train had just left the lowest station, and we were an instant too late to stop it. We were asked if we were afraid to risk meeting it on the single line. Wound up to a daredevil mood, we scorned the idea, and taking on board a man to wave the red flag of danger, we started off again. But now... We were cautiously creeping round the fog-hidden corners. In the twistings of the line, we might any moment find ourselves face to face with the engine. Besides, the mist deadened the sound of the approaching train and obscured any distant view. We listened with all our might, strained every nerve to keep a sharp lookout, only indulging in a feeble run on the straight. Just as we were once doing this, a man breaking stones on the road sprang forward to stop us, and pulling up sharply, for the trolley is fitted with a brake that brings it to a dead stop within six yards. We heard the laboring puff, puff of the engine quite close upon us, and the black monster loomed through the fog. It was the work of a minute to lift the trolley off the line. The train passed, and we reached Kersiong a few minutes afterwards. We had done twenty miles under the hour and gained fifty minutes on the mail train. This gave us just the time we wanted for a visit to one of the tea gardens in the valley. It was too early for operations to be going on, but the whole process was kindly explained to us by the manager in the Kersiong Tea Company's plantation. After the seed is planted, it requires three years before attaining to full growth and production and altogether six years must elapse without profit to the planter. At the end of this period, the stem is from three to four feet in height. It is then pruned during the months of November to February, when the sap is down, to two feet in height, and this is an operation requiring great care. Flushes, viz., new shoots, will continue to appear at intervals Bearing from 15 to 20 days during these months. Each flush is plucked as it comes on, the principle in plucking being to leave the bud at the axis of each leaf intact and ready for the next shoot to start from. According to the leaves plucked are the different classifications of tea. For instance, in a flush of four leaves, the first would be called orange or flowery pico the second Souchong, the third Kanju, and the fourth Bohia or Broken Tea. The classification varies with the different districts. At five o'clock in the evening, the factory gong sounds, and the pluckers bring their baskets to the withering loft, where the leaves are laid in thin layers on the floor till the following morning. Then the test of its being dry 
by seeing whether the leaf is still green enough to crackle is applied, after which it is put into the rolling machine. This machine is a heavy weight, which moves alternately to one corner of the square slab and then returns to the opposite one, thus giving the leaf a double twist. It is hand-rolled afterwards, if necessary. Then it is left to ferment, the process of fermentation being the most delicate and crucial operation for the tea. Great experience is necessary to know the exact moment when fermentation should be stopped. The leaf is spread in thin layers over a charcoal fire and finally sifted by means of a machine, which has trays of different degrees of coarseness, allowing the finest tea, or pico, to pass to the lowest division. The remaining, or broken tea, is then put through a breaking machine and sold as coarse tea. Lastly, the tea is packed in lead and in boxes containing 80 mons exported to England. There is great depression in the Indian tea trade, owing to its being found impossible to compete with the cheaper production of China. Darjeeling is one of the great centers for Indian tea. Assam being the other. We got places in the mail at Kersiong, and all through the afternoon were gently descending, thoroughly enjoying the splendor of the views we had missed in the fog coming up. Every 1,000 feet of descent brought an atmosphere 20 degrees warmer, very pleasant to us after our sufferings from the cold. The wheels being heavily dragged made a strangely melodious music, impossible as it may seem, like that produced by running the finger round the edge of a glass. At Tindaria, where the railway workshops are situated, the engine driver asked us to come on to the engine, and we had a charming ride, perched up one on each side of the brakesman. The engine was turned back foremost, that the driver might the better be enabled to see the steep gradients and we had a magnificent view from our post of observation. Every time that we passed under a bridge, lest any passenger should protrude his head, I blew the whistle thrice, and I was only sorry when we reached Siligori, and the journey was at an end. Here we had dinner, and were fortunate enough to get a saloon to ourselves, where we slept soundly till we reached Sarah at 6.30 the next morning. Embarking once more on the steam ferry, crossing the Ganges, and seeing the sun rise over its waters, we reached Calcutta at twelve the same morning. Thursday, January 15th. At the invitation of Mr. Rustamji, the head of a large Parsi family, well known and respected in commercial circles, we paid a visit to his house on Chowringi. We found the members of the family, 23 all told, including three generations, gathered under the paternal roof. The Parsi dress for women is very graceful and becoming. A robe of soft material, generally silk, covers the head, falling away from one shoulder, drawn over the other, and descending in graceful folds to the ankles. A white band across the forehead, like that of a nun's, gives a grave and sad look to the face. The colors chosen among the upper classes are usually soft grays or browns or purples. But amongst the lower orders, you see the bright sea green and cerise colors peculiar to the Parsi women. 
The children wear little silk pantaloons. Even those of the poorer classes are made of silk, and no inferior material is used. The long white tunic of muslin, the shasta, which no Parsi is without, the short jacket, usually of velvet, and the embroidered skull cap. The men, for the most part, wear European dress and are distinguished only by that square, receding hat of black or purple satin that I could not help remarking was useful on one occasion as a pincushion and on another as a card case during the few times that we were with Parsi gentlemen. The daughters of the house spoke English perfectly and were well-read and well-informed. Fifteen years ago, Parsi ladies were purder women or confined to the Zanyana, but the restriction has been gradually lapsing as their views become more enlarged. We dined in the evening at Government House to meet the Duke and Duchess of Connaught, a state dinner of seventy, followed by a reception. The next morning we were up at six a.m. and drove on to the Maidan to see a review. The fog was so dense that the whereabouts of the troops was undiscoverable at first. Fortunately, it lifted just before the arrival of the viceregal carriage containing the Duchess and Lady Dufferin, which took up its position by the royal standard. In the march past the naval brigade came first, followed by the volunteers, who possess a unique feature in their fine body of mounted infantry, and then followed our troops. But what excited our admiration most was the magnificent marching of the native infantry from the Punjab. Men of grand physique and carriage, nothing could exceed the perfect unity and compactness of the line, as with one foot they marched, with one body they moved, their uniform of scarlet faced with buff, with loose trousers gathered in by white gaiters, added to their general smartness. We were home to breakfast at nine o'clock. Afterwards, C went to a meeting at the Legislative Council and heard the now-celebrated Mr. Ibert speak, and we then visited together the high school on Kongrigi for the free education of Eurasians, the name given by Lord Auckland to half-castes, or those whose parents come the one from Europe, the other from Asia. In the afternoon, we drove across Tolly's Nullah, or the canal excavated at the expense of Colonel Tolly to the very dreary and deserted zoological gardens. Every Maharaja has his own band, in uniform, which they permit to play in the Eden Gardens and in public places. It was that of the Maharaja of Kuch Bihar that was playing in the gardens this afternoon. The latter, well known in society circles at Calcutta, is considered a most promising young man. Educated by an English tutor, he has been completely Europeanized, recites, plays polo, tennis and cricket, and dances like an Englishman. Driving home by my favorite Maidan, we saw anchored by the banks the Paul Grave, 3,400 tons, the largest sailing vessel afloat in the world. In the evening, we went to the ball given at Government House in honor of the Duke and Duchess of Connaught and the first of the new Vice-Royalty. The display of costly robes, magnificent jewels, 
and diamond aigrettes worn by the Maharajas and Rajas, both this evening and the previous one, added much to the brilliancy of the rooms. Eight hundred were able to sit down at the same moment to supper in the marble halls, a feat only equaled, I believe, at the Winter Palace at St. Petersburg. Saturday, January 17th, we went to a presentation of prizes at the City College for natives in Mirzapur Street. It was interesting to hear the scholars sing a Bengali hymn of welcome and recite a very lively dialogue, which, after listening to for some minutes, we discovered was a scene from Uncle Tom's Cabin, with gesticulation and expression far happier than would be found in English schools. They represented the scene where Topsy is brought before Mrs. Walker as incorrigible. Then a Bengali scholar knelt on the corner of the platform and with hands clasped, and his large liquid eyes upturned, repeated, Abide with me. There was something very curious in hearing thus the old familiar words repeated so earnestly, yet in such strong guttural accents that it was well nigh unrecognizable. One of the sudden dust storms to which Calcutta is subject came up after this, obscuring the air and whirling the dust in a typhoon in the streets. It cooled the air by several degrees, but prevented us from fulfilling our wish of finding out in the churchyard of St. John's the grave of Job Charnock, the real founder of Calcutta. On the eve of our departure from Calcutta, we dismissed the native servant we had engaged for our tour in the northwest provinces, and whom we had been told was absolutely necessary for traveling in India. We found we were always running after him, instead of he after us, and we determined to adhere to our original plan, hitherto so successful, of traveling without the encumbrance of servants. We left Calcutta that evening at eight o'clock, that is, by Madras time, which the East India Railway follows, or at 8.30 by Calcutta time. There was a great crowd at the Howrah Terminus, on account of Saturday being one of the nights on which the mail train leaves for Bombay, and we were unlucky in not getting a carriage to ourselves. End of chapter 15, part 3